2: Hello everyone, this is John Hagedorn, host of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. And this is Scott Rank, host of History Unplugged. And we're inviting you to join us in a discussion where we both pick three movie-worthy subjects from our banks of favorite stories and make the case as to why they should be made into movies. We know that podcasts like ours get trolled often by scriptwriters and agents for ideas, so we thought we'd make it easy for them. In the process, all of you get some pretty good stories and history out of this. Scott started podcasting about five years ago in the middle of his History PhD program, which was focused on the Ottoman Empire. He's prolific. He's done over 280 episodes in the last 18 months and focused on everything from copyright law to medieval laws on prostitution. His stories are always interesting. He knows his stuff, and he keeps you interested. We're glad to have him as a guest today. Scott, we're going to let you start things off by giving you a chance to introduce yourself. Then we'll alternate ideas and we'll see where this goes. The first movie idea is
0: all yours. Sound good? Yeah, sounds fantastic. Thanks, John. Um, this is a question that I get asked a lot from people who are historical figures you'd like to see into a movie, because I think a lot of people like historical biopics. And and I've thought about this a lot. and. Before I mention my first person, I just wanted to mention my criteria of how I thought of particular characters. And also how I think of what makes a good historical biopic and what doesn't. And the things that annoy me about what movies get wrong about history, it's not its not the nitpicky details. I mean, I get it. You're going to see horse stirrups in movies that are set in the Roman Empire. Okay, horse stirrups aren't invented to the Middle Ages, but... You know what? You have hundreds of extras and you can't expect them to ride a horse without stirrups. That's just how it is. Most people don't care. That that doesn't bother me. That's fine. I get it. The thing that does bother me is when people who make a historical biopic, they always have to make the protagonist basically a 21st century person zapped into the past. And the reason that annoys me is I feel like we miss out what history has to offer and what history has to teach us where it really is a foreign country and Yeah, people were different in the past. We might not like always how they were different, but that's just how it is. And just one short example before I get in my first movie of a movie I think that does this bad and one that did this well. Uh, There's a Crusader biopic called Kingdom of Heaven. And I thought it was terrible because the protagonist is a 21st century man who wants peace between Christians and Muslims. I think that's great in the 21st century. I want peace between religions. But they're depicting a person that, just didn't exist back then. So it's not even trying to understand the crusades on their own terms. One series that I think does a good version of history is actually the TV series, Mad Men. It's set in the 1960s. The protagonist is Donald Draper. And I think it's good because it shows us how a person with the same impulses as you or I would try to navigate a world that was really different from how it is today. I mean, a lot of what Don Draper does, it's not acceptable today is he Would he be considered racist today? Some Many people would say yes. Would he be considered sexist? All these different things. But the show isn't trying to condemn him. It's also not trying to sympathize with him, but it's just trying to show you how he was. And it's not making a lazy moral judgment. It's not zapping a 21st century person back into the time and making us feel good about ourselves the good The good thing about television is that we have we have a long enough period of time with that character and with that world that we can enter into it, and understand that world on its own terms. Movies don't have that much time, so they have to take shortcuts. So that's my really long preamble. And one last thing I'll mention is I tried to make it harder on myself, where I didn't choose anyone from World War II. Because there's just, you know how it is. I mean, everyone asks about World War II. World War II is great. There's a, there's a thousand, there's a million great stories from World War II. I thought I'd mix it up. So I want to mention my first person. And I've talked about this guy a lot on my pod- podcast. He's probably one of my favorite historical figures. And that is James Holman. Uh, James Holman was a world traveler. Uh, he traveled 120,000 kilometers or about 80,000 miles Um, Oh, no, I'm sorry, 400,000 kilometers in the early 19th century. Uh, This is before steamship, for the most part. This is before a lot of railroads were invented. Uh, He traveled five continents, 200 different cultures. He went to Siberia, to Brazil, to southern Africa, to Australia, to the Balkans. And he did all of this despite the fact that he was completely blind. And and I, I couldn't believe it when I heard his story. There's a book about him called The Sense of the World, and I had the author of the book on my show. So I'm only going to give a very small bit of his story here. But if people want to listen more about his story, uh, they can go to the podcast. But the the nutshell is that he was in the British Royal Navy. He came down with rheumatism. He wasn't born blind, but he went blind when he was in his mid-20s. We think it has to do with his rheumatism. We're not exactly sure. Going blind at this time, I think, would have set most people into depression because uh, blindness at that time was associated with God's punishment or syphilis, so it wasn't respectable to go blind. Uh, You would basically be locked away at home. There wasn't braille. There weren't resources for the blind uh, back then. Uh, But Holman didn't think that way. He started to leave his house by using an iron-tipped stick, and he would hit the concrete pretty hard to hear a noise and Basically, he used the powers of echolocation to see his surroundings, and he trained his senses to understand echolocation and see the world like a bat or dolphin. And after a while, he could navigate through a London restaurant and find his friend there. He could find the right table by himself. If he was walking on the street, he could tell when women were pat- crossing his path and would doff his hat to them like a gentleman. And he becomes more confident in his abilities. He learns how to ride a horse. He can scramble to the top of a crow's nest on a ship as a former naval officer. Uh, He goes to France to sample the waters for his achy joints, and he enjoys foreign travel so much that he starts to write down his notes of what other people describe to him about the scenery. He compiles his notes, publishes a book, and he becomes famous in England as the blind traveler. Some of the other things he did is he ascended Mount Vesuvius in Italy when the mountain was about to erupt in 1821. He crossed two-thirds of Russia over land on a sleigh that was guided by a man who um, didn't speak Russian, and Holman only spoke a little bit, so the two of them had no common language between them. He uh, went to the gold mines of Brazil. He went to the jungle of South Africa. And um, just one last story that I'll mention his life. He went to Sri Lanka, uh, and villagers told him that there was an unruly elephant that was stampeding. And he was competent with a shotgun, so he went into the jungles. He heard this elephant charging from very far away. He raised up his rifle and he took one shot and he brought it down. He's probably my top person of why on earth hasn't there been um, a movie about him? Because he just he blows my mind about not making excuses and achieving incredible things because he refused to make excuses about why he can't do something when anyone else in his position probably would. That's an that's incredible. What were the limits
2: of his blindness? Question number one. And question number two, did he have an assistant who helped him with any of these things?
0: Yeah, the limit of his blindness, he was completely blind. He had no sight whatsoever. Uh, In terms of assistance, he did not. He uh, traveled solo uh, throughout almost all of his journeys. And there were many times when he would first encounter people until he became a celebrity and they knew him as a blind traveler. They had no idea he was blind because he was so able to navigate a room, to walk around, and once he began talking with them and asking about physical descriptions of things, then they would realize it. But yeah, many people didn't know this because he was so able getting around himself. That's an amazing story. You said there's a good book out there, and that's called uh... Uh, it's called A Sense of the World. A Sense I think of the, the world. author's name, I think it's Jason Roberts, the author. But highly recommended. It. It's one of
2: my favorite books. Fantastic. Well, thanks for sharing that story. That would make an excellent movie. Now, I've got one for you. This is, a, this is about a 17-year-old girl named Julianne Kepke. Uh, it's the most incredible survival story I've, I've ever come across. She's 17 years old. She's on a plane flying over the Peruvian jungle. The plane is hit by lightning. She's on the plane with her mother at the time. It was uh, Christmas Eve, and they were flying into uh, another city in Peru to see her dad for Christmas. They they flew through a storm. Lightning hit the plane, and the plane literally broke in half uh, a mile up, and the plane crashed. The next thing she knew, she was regaining consciousness on the ground in the Amazon rainforest in Peru And there were corpses all around her and plane parts and seats. And there was no one moving, no one living. Uh, She had a gash on her right arm. She had a broken collarbone. And her right eye was pretty much closed. Uh, And as she started to gain her consciousness and get her senses about her, she realized that she still had to unbuckle her seatbelt. She had gone with a whole row of seats. She had been in one seat, but apparently there was three other seats to one side of her. She was on the end of one side. She gets her consciousness, and she understood Peru. Her mother and father were biologists, and they, in a, they were both doctorates, and they both worked in a, a uh, wildlife preserve in the Amazon River Valley there, and they pretty much had taught her the ways of living in that area from the time she was a young girl. So she knew she was uh, in, a, in a bad shape and very much alone. There were no other survivors. She was the only one. And she spent the first two days looking for her mother. Uh, the people who had fallen from the plane were in pretty bad shape, as you can understand. She was finally able, after the end of the second day, to find her mother only because of the type of toenail polish that she wore uh, when she saw her mother's feet. Uh, so imagine, imagine most people in that situation, all alone in the middle of the Amazonian rainforest, with no tools, nothing. She was lacking one shoe. She had a dress on. She had no purse, no matches, no food other than some candies that she had taken from some of the litter that was lying around on the ground. And she knew, her father had said, if you ever get lost out here, you need to follow the rivers downstream, from a smaller river to bigger river. So she gathered her wits about her. The the crying was over. It was time to survive. And she started uh, making her way along a small stream that she found and When you look at that area of the Amazon rainforest, it's filled with all kinds of nasty critters. You've got poisonous bugs. You've got all types of insect swarms. In the lagoon and water areas, you've got crocodiles. Just a nasty, nasty situation. Leeches, when you're trying to cross streams and rivers. She started hiking through the jungle. She spent a total of 17 days alone out there with no food really little hope of survival until finally she had gone down a larger river she spent the last two days wading the river uh, picking up all kinds of leeches and always afraid of bigger animals <laughs> and and killer fish that exist in that river until she finally reached a dock and she saw a, a boat there with a gas motor and she didn't want to she didn't want to take the boat out because she was believe it or not here she is surviving all this she was afraid someone might think she was stealing it but she had her her insect wounds; they had bitten her and then left eggs inside. And she poured gasoline on her uh, on the gash on her arm, which they had gone after first. And out she counted thirty-two maggots crawling out of that gash. So yeah. she's 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 trying to treat herself medically. She's exhausted. She hasn't had any food. Most people would just break down. And the there were lumbermen out there in the middle of that rainforest, and they came upon her, and they uh, they rescued her. They took her in the boat uh, to the to the nearest town. She was bused to an airport. They contacted her father, who had not been on the plane, and let him know she was alive. Then she was able to reunite with her father, who was obviously overjoyed. They'd been told that the plane was lost, and everyone was presumed dead. Uh, and then she had the courage within days to lead a search party back to that scene. There, were, there was a documentary made, and there was a movie made. The movie was kind of B-actors, uh, not, not a very good movie. And if ever there was a good survival story that, does, that deserves a good movie, the story of Julianne Kepke is definitely a survival story. Just the way she, she kept her wits about her, she had a lot of courage, and she kept going, I think, where a lot of people never would have made it.
0: What year was this, approximately? 1971. 1971. Okay. Wow. So the Amazon is always rustic, but um, there would have been a lot less civilization and inroads and ways to track people even more so back then than today.
2: Oh yeah. She had no no cell phone, no compass, nothing. That flight, by the way, was a, a LANSA flight 508. And I did a little follow-up on that and found, uh, I searched, there've been a lot of accidents with Lancers. number one. And number two, there've been a lot of sole survivors. Uh, from plane accidents, uh, hundreds. And that's a story that we'll do someday at 1001 Heroes, um, just as a follow-up on that. Mm. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001stories at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001stories
0: at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. All right. So uh, I guess it's time for my number two. You bet. Okay. Well, I was thinking a lot about this and I figured people are interested in Vikings a lot these days. There's that show on Showtime, Vikings. So Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I wanted to choose a Viking. I've been asked about them a lot. And my first choice, which I ultimately didn't go with, was Harold Hardrada. He was the king of Norway. Uh, He tried to conquer England in 1066, the same year that William the Conqueror did conquer England. Uh, But I liked him because uh, before he was king of Norway, he was a mercenary. He was a commander of the Varangian Guard in the Byzantine Empire. So he travels to Constantinople. He travels in the Mediterranean. He's sort of a good stand-in for all the traveling and trading that the Vikings did from northern Europe down to Russia. Uh, But I thought, all right, if you're a Hollywood producer, if you're going to do a historical biopic, you have to choose someone with a little bit more name recognition. So... I chose Leif Erikson. Oh yeah, which uh, it is early. It's um, early October when we're recording this, and yesterday was actually Leif Erikson Day, which comes the day after Columbus Day. So he's got some pri- he's got some pride in the Scandinavian community. <laughs> um, but so yeah, he's a. Uh, if anyone knows about him, they've heard the story that about 1000 AD he goes on a big adventure. Uh, so I want to give a little bit of context to him and describe it. Uh, so the Viking Age start kicks off around the 700s. That's when Europe is able to rebuild enough after the fall of Rome that it's able to have some nice monasteries and uh, nice sites along the coastline for some plundering. So Viking civilization grows up uh, in light of this. But in addition to plundering, they're also a great uh, trade empire and they are great explorers. They go down the Volga River from Russia down to Constantinople down to Arabia. We have Abbasid coins in Sweden to this day. And they also travel the northern route. They go to England, Ireland for trade, for plundering, all that good stuff. But then they go, they keep going. They go up to the Faroe Islands. They go up to They go up to Greenland. Uh, Then they make it all the way up to Canada. So there's an entire northern route that Vikings are able to travel across on their longships and hop from island to island. uh, So much so that people wonder why the Vikings didn't conquer the, or colonize the new world. There are archeological ruins that people think are Vikings, uh, Viking ruins in new England. Uh, There's even someone who emailed me and asked about Viking ruins in Oklahoma. Hmm. And I said, you know, I don't think that's the case because I don't know what anyone would be doing in Oklahoma at that time. And (laughs) I, I, I saw an article about it and it looks like there was um, some farmer in the 1800s who had a good sense of humor. So he carved some runic scripts and some stones. And I kind of like that sense of humor. I might do that someday,
1: but um, <laughs> okay.
0: So, th- so, so that's the, the context of the Vikings. But what Leif Erikson does is um, around 1000, he sails to Norway, uh, King Olaf, the uh, first, according to chronicle or accounts that are written hundreds of years after the fact, he can. He's converted to Christianity, and according to one school of thought, Erikson sailed off course on way back to Greenland, where he was from, at a Viking settlement, and he landed on the North American continent, where he explored a region called Vinland, because there were lots of vines there. Uh, he may have sought out Vinland based on stories of an earlier voyage by an Icelandic trader, and we have medieval accounts of. Someone named Brendan the Navigator, an Irishman who has thought to have traveled to Iceland and some people think the New World, but we don't know. And after spending the winter in Vinland, um, Leif Erikson sailed back to Greenland and never returned to the North American shore. So he's thought to be the first European to reach the North American continent nearly four centuries before Christopher Columbus in 1492. There's different accounts of what his voyage looked like, and the exact location of his landing is also in doubt. Um, Possibly Labrador, possibly Newfoundland. Uh, There's a variety of spots along the northern Atlantic coast that people think. Uh, But in the early 1960s, uh, there were excavations on the northernmost tip of Newfoundland that turned up evidence of what's generally believed to be the base camp of an 11th century Viking exploration that very well could have been his landing site, landing site. Wow. Uh, so, so anyway, it's um. There's a lot of about that that's interesting. He beats Columbus by 400 years. Um, there are things about Columbus's legacy that have gotten more negative in recent years, particularly his relations with natives and what many see as exploitation. But what's interesting about Columbus versus Leif Erickson is that his There was a Leif Erikson Day uh, that was inaugurated in 1925 in honor of the 100th anniversary of the arrival of the first group of Norwegian immigrants to the United States. And Calvin Coolidge announced to a Minnesota crowd that Leif Erikson had been the first European to discover America. Mm -hmm. So in 1964, Congress approved a public resolution that authorized um, Leif Erikson Day, but in the early 1900s, it was not so much about the explorers. It was more about beef between Norwegian communities and Italian communities, because Christopher Columbus was held up by the Italian community. as the the first American, and uh, Leif Erikson was a response by Norwegian community. So that's part of where the beef came in. But um, immigrant community pride aside, I think Leif Erikson has pretty interesting story about explorers. Yeah,
2: I agree with you. And Columbus never made it past Central America, is that correct?
0: Right, he landed on Hispaniola where um Haiti and the Dominican Republic are located, but he never made it to mainland America. And um okay, Leif Erikson, he was in Canada, but that's part of the North American continent proper, so mm-hmm. we got we have to give him that.
2: Yeah, and and they did find at least a coin, didn't they, along somewhere along that eastern northeastern coast that they believed uh, was probably left by Erikson.
0: I don't know about that particular case, about the evidence, if they could link it back to him. Um, That very well could be the case. I'm not sure one way or another, but they have found Viking remains, uh, tools that are commonly used by Vikings, uh, materials with runic scripts on them. So, uh, sure, the the dates do match up with what we have from Chronicle or Accounts and the dates of settlement there that Leif Erikson could have been the guy to do it. Good biography. Yeah, so that's... um, yeah, so that's my Viking poster boy right there. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, if we're going to go after someone, I think he's maybe the most likely uh, person we can have to make a film out of him. Uh, but who's next
2: up on your and John? Well, this is a young lady who was the daughter of a Russian czar. And the Russian czar's name was Nicholas II. And millions and millions of people, especially especially young people, I guess they're getting a little older now, saw Anastasia, the Disney production. And I just wanted to take a minute to say that she deserves a good movie made about her. And if there's <laughs> if there's one out there, somebody let me know. But the the Disney has movie has kind of overshadowed everything else. I did look to see if there was a good story about Anastasia uh, movie movie wise. Couldn't find one. There were a lot of uh, misconceptions uh, in the movie. First, the biggest one being that uh, there was a happy ending for for her, number one, and number two, that uh, they used the story of an imposter for the movie. She, her name was Anna Anderson. In the days after Anastasia, the murder of her and her family, there were a lot of rumors out there that possibly she had survived, which today they've proved absolutely that she did not. Uh, she was murdered in 1918 by orders of the Socialist Party. The people who acted out those orders were called the Bolsheviks. And they had uh, gathered the family in the house where they were basically being kept under guard, told them they were going to be taking a train and to be ready to go. They gathered them all in the basement of that home. They sent in the uh, agents with guns, and they just kept shooting till not a thing was moving. And that's that's what, in actuality, did happen to Anastasia. Another misconception in the movie was that Rasputin was an evil man and that he had plotted to kill the Romanov family, when in fact uh, he wasn't. He was considered a holy man, and he was very close with the Romanov family. And that, that closeness earned a lot of uh, hatred from the, from the press at that time, who felt that he was getting too close to the Tsar and that uh, they were hoping that the czar would go in one direction, and they were afraid that Rasputin might be sending him in another politically. So they had a target on uh, Rasputin's back. And it was uh, socialist agents that finally did track down and kill Rasputin, using a friend of his to invite him to his house for wine. And they had it set up where they could try to murder him at that point. That story is a story in itself. It took quite a long time to actually kill Rasputin. He was not an easy man to die. He was a very very tough guy. But finally he did succumb. They dumped him over a a railroad trestle in the winter into a frozen river. And he was found there a couple days later. He was killed in 1916. The St. Petersburg in the the Disney show was called St. Petersburg. The actual name of that, and and I know you know this from from all your history, was uh, Petrograd, which was later changed to Leningrad. And it wasn't until 1946, after World War II, that it was finally changed to St. Petersburg. She was not the heir to the throne, which the Disney movie kind of says that she is. Actually, she had three older sisters, and she had one younger brother named Alexei. And Alexei was the boy, the only boy in the family, and therefore he was uh, monarchy rules. He was heir to the throne. Alexei, as well as the others in the family, had hemophilia, which was proved later. That was something that affected the entire family. He was supposed to go in for an operation, and Rasputin, who had met the Tsar and his wife, suggested that they not operate on him, even though it was a life-threatening situation. And they took his advice. And uh, Rasputin had said, if you do not operate, the boy will come out of this and he'll survive. And they took, they trusted in his word because at that time they were starting to gain some real trust in him. Uh, The surgeon said, no, no, we've got to operate to save his life. But they didn't, and the boy ended up recovering. That's where the real trust in Rasputin came. Interesting side note on Rasputin, he he had a daughter who survived and ended up coming to the U.S. uh, in the 20s and 30s, worked for Barnum & Bailey. Uh, And she, I think, survived till around 1945, somewhere around there, if I'm right. But that's that in in a real brief is the story of what happened to Anastasia. And that deserves a movie if anyone ever did.
0: Yeah, definitely. And uh, one follow up question with that, John. So I've read about uh, imposter Anastasia's who would go around Europe and pretending to be her, that she had survived. She was the last Romanoff and. Most of these people, no, all of these people were swindlers and would use their fake error prestige to get money from people, to extort people, other things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, have you come across many cases like that of these fake Anastasias? Uh, there were there were dozens of fake Anastasias. Uh, you're
2: exactly right, and they all claimed to have um, to be her, but each one was taken on its own merit and and demugged. The, the, closest, the closest one that ever got to it was Anna Anderson, and, and she was debunked as well. So much, much later, when the, when the bodies were discovered, they were able to run DNA tests. And although it was a tie, they couldn't differentiate between Anastasia and one of her sisters. They weren't sure, but both corpses were there. Uh, all the corpses of the sisters and little Alexei were there. As well as the doctor and the mother and the father and even the dog that they had killed, they had dumped them into an, an abandoned mine shaft, and it was years before they were found, but they finally were and when the when DNA became available, that uh, was the first thing they did, so that she it was proved beyond a doubt that uh they couldn't they just couldn't tell of the two corpses which one was actually hers, but uh everything else was pretty much put to rest
0: That could be a good episode you do sometime on imposters.
2: yeah that would be that would be an excellent episode imposters would be that's a great idea thank you i'm making a note of that great the great imposters i did i did one called the great imposters for one of my other uh, shows that i have called uh, 1001 stories for the road and that was about barry bremer barry bremer was a sports imposter back in the 70s he was absolutely crazy he showed up in left field one time for the Yankees. I mean, <laughs> he he would he would go to PGA events and pretend to be a, a, pro, a pro golfer. I mean, he was he did football. He crashed a football game in in uniform. Was out there on the field. So well, he he was a constant guest on Johnny Carson, uh, <laughs> just talking about his exploits. But the world got to know him. Uh, his his family family knew he was a little off, but they absolutely loved him. You know, be it good or bad, he created he created a legend for himself.
0: Okay, so this is my third person, and um, I really have a thing for spies. I'm interested in spycraft, and um, I did a series on my podcast about spies in World War II. Mm-hmm. But for my third person, I wanted to go back earlier than that. Um, and spies have been around forever. Spycraft is mentioned in Zhu. We have um, a manual written in ancient Greek on uh, military strategy, and there's a whole section on spycraft called, I think it's the Tacticon. Um, but one person I want to mention is Francis Walsingham. Uh, Francis Walsingham was the spymaster for Queen Elizabeth in the 1500s, and the 16th century in England, when England is really emerging as a global power. And I'm interested in this time period because um, this is when you start to see the beginning of uh, embassies being established in the European capitals. And what this means is that now you have a foreign government literally in your backyard, in your capital city. Uh, You have diplomats walking amongst each other. They have diplomatic pouches. They have confidential messages they're exchanging back to uh, their home country. Uh, If a nation or an empire is planning an invasion of another person, you have this intelligence traveling and being transmitted between these people. And it, incre- it creates this incredible opportunity for spycraft. And one of my friends from my uh, PhD days wrote his dissertation on spycraft in the Mediterranean in the 1500s. And Francis Walsingham was right at the nerve center of all of this. So I'm, just, I'm intrigued when we think of um, James Bond and spycraft today. What did that look like back then? Did you have a Q, this uh, gadget guy who made 15th century versions of high-tech gadgets for cryptography or getting in, infiltrating secure places in order to gather intelligence? What did that look like? Uh, and, so, and for Francis, he's crucial because England was outnumbered by its more powerful rivals on the European continent because it's a Protestant island in a sea of Catholicism. It never had great relations with its neighbors, with France, with the Netherlands, with the, with Spain. It's invaded by Spain. Uh, didn't have good relations with the papacy because it put a hit out on Elizabeth because of her so-called apostasy from Catholicism. So Elizabeth is in constant danger of assassination. And she was only really kept safe by her network of spies and her merciless spymaster Francis Walsingham. And I think it shows how successful he was because she reigned for multiple decades, but wasn't assassinated. And Francis did this because he had to ferret out all these plots against the crown. And he did this by creating an intelligence network. He had contacts in Europe's trade communities and the European courts abroad. Uh, so he was sort of like James Bond's M. He was ahead of the equivalent back then of the MI5 or the MI6. Uh, so Walsingham, he took information wherever he could find it. Whether it was from a sailor who heard from the latest gossip from a brothel in Marseille or a French politician with Protestant sympathies, he gained intelligence from ambassadors of Spain. And from, it's from this that he learned detailed information from uh, the Spanish Armada's planned attack. Uh, so at one point, he said to have had 53 agents at foreign courts in his pay, along with 18 other even more obscure people. Um, and they were in the courts of France, Spain, the Netherlands, Germany, and even the Ottoman Empire. He had there were some double agents that were his under his employ, and we still don't know what their true intentions were to this day. Uh, so he was just good at recruiting people, good at outpaying them compared to their adversaries. So that's why um, he could get all this information. Uh, so Walsingham, he wasn't the inventor of foreign espionage, but this was just a staple of international diplomacy in the 16th century when. The first embassies are established, beginning in the Italian city-states, and then moving out from there. And uh, spycraft became an arms race among European and Mediterranean nations, where large empires grow and rivalries form, and you have a greater need for specialized intelligence. And the way he had uh, simple methods of espionage. Uh, The preferred method of spying was um, where crypto analysts, they would slice open wax seals, of intercepted coded messages with hot knives before deciphering them. He, in his office in London, he had been trained in deciphering codes and ciphers and faking handwriting. Uh, He had a forgery expert uh, in his employ and a cryptographer, uh, another expert at breaking and fixing letter seals and reattaching them so no one could tell the difference. Uh, Walsingham also collected large files on public figures any new detailed information on all important persons in England down to county level justices of the peace. So if he had to blackmail somebody, he could. Uh, He could also trace suspicious movements and determine the beginnings of a conspiracy. So if somebody was deemed a high level threat, whether leaking intelligence or um, maybe becoming a double agent, he could extract information through blackmail. Um, He also had torturers in his employ. Um, so that was a more primitive way of getting information from people that he needed to. He had some interesting people in his office. Um, being a spy, it wasn't glamorous like the MI5 or MI6 would make you or the James Bond movies would make you think it was today. Uh Spycraft was not a respectable pr- um, profession at the time. Virtue and morality, they were still um respected in a medieval sense, even though we're not in the Middle Ages any longer. They, you still respect the virtues of um, honesty, the, these knightly values. So, uh, political service to the queen was considered the, the respectable ways were in armed combat or um, doing it openly and not sneaking around like they did. So, the world of spying at this time wasn't glamorous. In our imagination, we would think of a two door era agent. That would seduce an upper class socialite by buying her a tankard of beer in an ale house, but <laughs> it wasn't like that. Um, you would you would basically recruit these dropouts from Oxford or Cambridge who would know foreign languages, but uh, um, they would just go to yeah they they would get intelligence wherever they could in taverns and brothels or wherever wherever else. So Walsingham, well, probably the most famous thing he did was infiltrate the Babington plot. This was a plot to place Mary, Queen of Scots on the throne, mm-hmm. and he did so by intercepting the letters of the Spanish ambassador in England, and he unraveled the plot through his network of spies that were embedded in various European embassies. Now, I'm sure if Hollywood got their hands on this, then they would have all these ridiculous contrivances. They would imagine the steampunk technology where there were these gas-powered repelling hooks and things like that that spy was would use to get around, like like Assassin's Creed, those video games do today, where you're leaping around and all, all that. So that's probably what would, it would be the poor man's Assassin's Creed if this were made into a movie. <laughs> but anyway, I think that there's, pl- there's plenty there to work with. You have your 16th century James Bond. There you go. Yeah, that's, it's a
2: great story. Walsingham, apparently quite a guy. I've got an unusual link to him that, that might interest you. In fact, it might, it might uh, spur you to more research or you may already know some details. I was following up on America's greatest mystery, which in my opinion is the lost colony, what happened to those
0: Ah, people,
2: and that's from Walsingham's time, and I was uh, doing an interview with Fred Willard, who uh, is no longer with us, but uh, he and his wife, Catherine, uh, started the Lost Colony Center for Science and Research down in North Carolina, and he has devoted uh, a, a couple of decades to finding out what actually did happen to those colonists who just pretty much vanished as far as uh, as far as all our records go and they've, they've been searching for them ever since and it was it was fred's belief and i believe he was right that raleigh and walsingham but raleigh being the man on the ground uh, basically in contact with the uh, those original settlers that raleigh convinced them that if they should ever run into trouble to go with uh, Chief Manteo, who was the chief of the of the local tribe there, uh, for safety. And apparently that first winter was pretty tough. The, they couldn't get supply ships back to the people at the colony. They had a little fort there, and they had to abandon the fort. And from that point on, nobody's found any trace of them. But uh, Willard felt, and a lot of other researchers also feel, that they followed Manteo out of the fort hopefully to find a safer location where they could be among friendly Indians uh, and not uh, attacking Indians. And that Raleigh was using them for his own purposes, that they actually went to a a lake southeast of of Manteo on the North Carolina coast. I wish I could think of the name of the lake. But in that lake sits a lot of sassafras trees, groves and groves and groves of sassafras. And at that time, there was no cure for syphilis. And sassafras, being a very rare tree, was found to be the bark. The bark could be boiled down, processed in some way, where it was a cure for syphilis. And in that, uh, from that point of view, there was a lot of money to be made from sassafras. So Willard felt that Raleigh, with Walsingham's help, kept quiet. He did find out. Not he. He directed them. He knew exactly where they were, but with Walsingham's help. He sent uh, ships down there on a regular basis and had these people uh, foresting that area down there for sassafras, and a good number of them were, were wiped out by the plague that apparently one of those boats had brought up from the islands, because they, they were always en route on uh, trade along the, the Atlantic coast of the U.S. from the, from the islands down in the uh, Caribbean, Sorry, up past the U.S. coast and then, and then across the Atlantic to England. So he was sending ships down there for, for Sassafras and selling them for quite a good amount. And that he and Walsingham uh, and the Queen were all profiting on that. That's, that was Willard's theory uh, before he died. And I think that he probably has something going with that. That's also something you might know a little bit about. Have you ever heard of that relationship,
0: that uh, situation? Yeah, that's really interesting. I've looked at uh, theories of the lost Roanoke colony, and uh, I hadn't heard that particular one, so I'm really curious. Um, but what you mentioned, uh, uh, that syphilis had this impact on trying to harvest sassafras trees, uh, I've I've been, I don't know if I want to say surprised, disappointed, or amused by how much syphilis really affects the 1500s, where... Um, I guess that's the New World's. It's a small amount of revenge for smallpox. By no means does it inflict the death toll, but I mean, syphilis just bombards Europe by the late 1400s, 1500s. Um, doesn't it take sailors too long to spread that around uh, all the different port cities mm-hmm. from the New World. And um, I read that the fashion statement of the copies. Uh, came about as a result of syphilis, where it was a place for people to keep their medicine. Uh, the British wigs that you see was a result of syphilis because one result is that you would go bald, so the wigs were a way to cover your hair. In uh, yeah. Turkish today, uh, the word for syphilis, uh, it, they it's called in Turkish the Frankish disease because the term for Middle Easterners for a European was a Frank. That comes from Charlemagne's time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they still call it that because it was seen as this, bizarre disease that came out of the West. And um, so that's just another thing right there. That could have explained the disappearance of the Roanoke colony. So syphilis is just all over the place in the 1500s.
2: It's felt that those who survived the epidemic did form a community there and that they merged with the the Indians Uh, over the decades. The merge became uh, almost complete and that there is a tribe uh, located around Lumberton, North Carolina called the Lumbee tribe. And that tribe, huh. according to uh, researchers who have done some work out there, about, I think it's 45 to 50% of the surnames of the people in that tribe match the surnames of the colonists. And that they admit to and are very aware of family legends uh, that uh, that go back to those times. And they say, yes, we are descended uh, from those colonists. And the the bitter part of that uh, the bitter part of that is the fact of how the Indians in North Carolina were treated uh, from those days back in uh, around 1600, 1587, uh, up through the 1950s. Um, here they were descendants of early British colonists, and yet were given second, second person status uh, all the way up through. So um, interesting story in that. Because you can, you're able to look at it as you start to to see what happened to them. You're able to look at it from a different perspective when you know that they're that they were actually the colonists. Quite an interesting story, and one one that deserves a movie as well.
0: Yeah, especially uh, understanding better the early America before you get into um, John Smith and that whole story and everything else. Um, and see how things kick off. Uh, But I understand you have one more figure and this other person who deserves a movie is a fighter pilot. So can you tell me about this person? I sure can. I'm going to,
2: I'm going to take you to New York city at the NBC building in 1955. And there's a morning show that's very popular on television called the today show with Dave Garraway, who was the host of that show. And he would come into the building every morning, uh, a couple hours before his show, his live show was to begin, and head up the elevator with the same elevator operator every day, who was a, a slight built African-American gentleman, quite old, with gray hair, uh, glasses. And on his elevator operator uniform, he would often wear a string of medals. And one day one of Garraway's executives at NBC said, did you, "Did you ever talk to your elevator operator?" And Garraway says, no, I always have my mind on the show. And then one day he introduced himself and, and other more than just a name. And he said, he said, I wondered where all those medals came from. And uh, this man, whose name was Eugene Jacques Boulard, said, yeah, this is the French uh, Croix de Guerre, which is the hardest medal to earn in France and only earned through war. It's a it's a war medal. Uh, and I have uh, 15 others uh, that are very similar to it. And they got into a conversation. And Garraway said, oh, my God. He said, you're, you're a hero of the French people. And, they, and he invited him onto the show as a guest. So that was quite a legendary day at NBC when they had a very mild-mannered Eugene Jacques Boulard who lived in a, uh, on a walk-up flat in Manhattan. Boulard's life was absolutely incredible. Grew up in Georgia. He lost his mother early, family of five. Uh, at age 13, uh, his father, who worked at the loading docks, one guy had gone, his foreman had gone just a little too far, way too far, in admonishing Boulard's dad. And Boulard's dad picked this guy up and threw him down into a loading bin, broke him up pretty good. And that started a lynch mob after Mr. Boulard. So he got back to the kids and said, Listen, I'm going to have to disappear for quite a while uh, because they're They want to hang me. So the kids were basically on their own. And not too many days after that, Eugene, at age 13, left home, wandered up into northern Georgia, joined a gypsy camp who took him in. He stayed with the gypsy camp for about a year. And there they taught him how to fight, and they taught him a lot about horses. His dad had always told him, son, he said, I want you to learn while you're in school. And he was attending a school. And study and know all you can, and someday go to France because that's the one place in the world you can go and be treated with respect. So he always had that in the back of his mind, and he told the gypsies the same thing, that he was going to do that. And they suggested at one point when he, had his, he was getting itchy to go, they said, take a train down toward Norfolk Newport News and see if you can get on a ship, and that, that you might get over there. And he went down there, and he stowed away on board a German freighter. And when when the freighter went out to sea, and they did find him, uh, they said, well, <laughs> you're going to have to be satisfied with being a cabin boy, but uh, as long as you do your job, we won't throw you overboard. And they, it <laughs> all turned out, they they ended up liking this kid because he always had a good smile and he was a hard, hard worker. And he he was trying to pick up their language, German, which he did. And the freighter uh, made it to uh, Glasgow, actually Aberdeen, Scotland first, uh, is where he got off. And then he, moved, he went to Glasgow. He started fighting a little bit. Uh, in a ring that he joined and then they moved him on to London and then he became a fairly decent fighter. And then he finally, um, he moved, he, he got to Paris in France and there he joined a, a, a entertainment troupe. He worked as a pickaninny, which would be a uh, kind of a lightweight uh, teenage entertainer who makes jokes prior to the show. And this, this show, a uh, troupe that he joined was called Friedman's Pickaninnies, very famous all over Europe. And he got to tour Europe. He learned French, uh, and they went to all the major cities in Europe with this tour. And when he got back, it was 1914, World War I had broken out, and he loved Paris, he loved France, uh, and he was just old enough to sign up. So he signed up with the French Foreign Legion and got into uh, heavy, heavy fighting in the Battle of the Somme and others. And he was badly wounded, but he said, you know, I can still walk and I can still fly a plane. How about teaching me how to fly a plane? So he uh, went to the French Air Corps, signed up, got his license, became the first American-born black fighter pilot. There were some others from Saudi Arabia and North Africa, not many, but he was the first American-born fighter pilot in history. Flew for the French Air Corps, uh, shot down German planes. Finally, the war ended, and at that time he went to work for a nightclub, became a drummer, and he was now uh, 20, 21 years old. And a very likable guy, a very, very responsible guy. And the owner of this one nightclub where he was drummer really liked him. and had him start booking acts. And he started meeting people. He would meet. In that, at that time, Paris was the jazz capital of the world. People would come from everywhere, especially the rich and famous, to go to the jazz clubs in Paris. So he was right in the middle of that jazz renaissance. And he was meeting people like, uh, like Louis Armstrong and a lot of the jazz favorites of the day and then he worked his way up to where he owned his he got a, he got a loan and he he opened his own bar and then he opened a nightclub uh and then he married a very wealthy white woman uh she was a socialite in paris married her had two daughters and now it's just in it now it's the late 30s just edging up to germany be, becoming the power that they were and the french underground came to him and said listen you understand german you know french And there's 17,000 Germans living in Paris right now, and a lot of them attend your bar and your your gym. So we'd like you to just keep an open ear and let us know whenever you hear anything. So he actually became an agent for the French Underground during that time. And when uh, Germany did attack France in May of uh, '40, uh, he joined the 51st Infantry. And within weeks, he was in in heavy, heavy fighting. He got uh, injured badly by a shell burst, and this one just about took him out. But uh, the doctor recognized him from the French Foreign Legion and fixed him up and said, I can get you as far as Spain, and then I've arranged for you to take a ship to New York. Now, his daughters are being protected by uh, one of the agents named Kitty, who, uh, who he had worked with. Kitty had his daughters. He could not get from Spain back into Paris. Uh, the Germans had everything locked up. He couldn't do it. He couldn't, he couldn't have done it and survived. So he took the ship to New York. Uh, settled in New York, and within a couple of years, he was able to get his daughters uh, back. But at this time, he had uh, he had accumulated 15 medals. <laughs> when De Gaulle came to the U.S. after World War II had ended, he stopped in Washington D.C. and he wants to, he wanted to know where the hero Brûlard was, and the the president's staff said, embarrassingly said, "We have we don't know this guy. We don't know where he is. What do you know about him?" and de Gaulle had to fill them in, and they did uh, quite a bit of searching. They finally did find him living in New York City, and there was a strong contingent of World War II veterans who had fought for France and in France in New York City. And when de Gaulle came to New York City, he singled out uh, Jacques Boulard and uh, awarded him uh, and said, I want you to come to France uh, to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and I want you to help me in that celebration, which he did. He also became close friends with a, a black entertainer named Paul Robeson. And Robeson was an, he was an over-the-top activist, which I guess any, any guy with dark skin in the 50s who was, wasn't afraid to stand up to people, I guess, was called an over-the-top activist. And there was a lot of racism going on back in those days. Robeson would have concerts, and at the concert, he was great talent. He was a great singer. But a lot of things would get stirred up in the area. So here we are up in New York in Peekskill at the end of a Robeson concert. And as the cars were leaving, the cops pulled Boulard out of his car. And there's still a video out there today of the cops beating him with nightsticks. They broke his glasses. They hammered him up pretty good. Part of our history and an embarrassing time for Peekskill, New York. This happened in around 50, 54, I think it was. There's the life in a nutshell of the first African-American born fighter pilot who ever lived and a story that's never been told in a movie. And I, I think it would be real good time for Hollywood producers to jump on that one.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably the winner of all the different movie ideas we discussed here. If there's anything that could come out, um, Boulard, that's probably it. So if there's any producers uh, out there, John, I think you've earned yourself hopefully a advisor credit or something like that, um, if you can get on board something that comes out. Well, yeah, I'd like to have uh, give you a big thanks for um, doing this and having... You being on my show, I guess me being on your show, too, since we're uh, cross-promoting here. Yeah, we'll let everyone uh, know we're going to launch both
2: of these shows at the same time. Uh, So keep an eye on us for when they come out. And uh, I definitely would like you to give our fans all your information of how they can find your show. Okay? And then I'll do the same.
0: Yeah, the easiest way is uh, if you go to historyunpluggedpodcast.com. That gives you the episode info. That tells you how you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or whatever you listen to. In terms of interaction, uh, I prefer Facebook. Yeah, I know data breaches. It's not the best thing right now, but uh, we have a pretty good community. So if you want to follow up and discuss with other people about any of the latest episodes, just uh, go to Facebook, search for History Unplugged, and you'll find it right there. And um, John, your show, uh, 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, where is the best place for people to find you? And uh, also I wanted to ask you, what do you think are three episodes of yours that are the best entry point into your show?
2: Uh, Well, of course, the topics that we just covered, I've got shows. The Lost Colony is one of my shows. Uh, Anastasia is another two-part show we had. Uh, The Katyn Massacre uh, of the uh, Soviets in Poland. At the Outbreak of World War II is a two-part show. It's, it's, it's quite excellent. But uh, you can find uh, Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries wherever great podcasts are found. Just search 1001 Heroes. Uh, I do have a network of shows. I have another show, which is just as big, which does classical short stories, classic short stories. And that's called 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. And you could catch all my episodes for all my shows at 1001 one stories podcast.com so that's www.1001storiespodcast.com at facebook we're at 1001 heroes and at twitter it's at 1001 podcast so we'd love to have you join
0: us all right yeah and you can find both those shows at the urls we gave you so thank you everyone for listening and and also could you
2: could you, Scott, also give us maybe three uh, shows that you would recommend to newcomers? So when we have people coming across to listen to your shows, which ones do you think they should start with?
0: Yeah, uh, to follow up on the topics I mentioned, the first one is on World War II spies. So you can hear stories of people who infiltrated the Manhattan Project, members of the French Underground. Uh, a second episode is a about a Victorian explorer named Richard Francis Burton, who Translated the Kama Sutra to English. He traveled in disguise to Mecca and he also knew 29 languages. Quite a guy. Uh, The third thing I'd recommend is I did a five part series on a history of slavery from the ancient world up to abolition. Episode two, I talk a lot about the Viking slave trade. So if you want to look more about Viking culture, find out all the Europeans who were caught up in raids, enslaved, and taken from. They're a small village in England, England and Ireland, and sold on the Volga River, or even sold in Arabia. And you can find that in that series. So it's called A History of Slavery. Well, Scott, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I think we'll
2: do this again sometime. This has been a lot of fun and very interesting history you shared with us. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. Also, uh, part of as part of today's interviews, we have one that's going to be coming up. So keep your eyes peeled. For the Presidential Fight Club, uh, Scott is an expert on U.S. presidents, uh, past and present. But we're going to take some past U.S. presidents and line up some boxing matches. So I think that uh, I think that you fans do not want to miss this one. Uh, he has got the Scott has the credentials and understands the the he's got everything from arm length to speed of punch. Uh, for these guys, and we're going we're gonna to pit some presidents, some past presidents, against each other and see who ends up still standing. That's called Presidential Fight Club. I don't want you to miss it, and we'll also give you a cue as to when it's going to be playing just as soon as we have it edited and ready to go. Does that sound good to you, Scott? Sounds great. <laughs> okay, thank you, everybody, and we'll be back soon.